Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Hearing Sam Cooke on the radio was in no way unusual in 1964. The singer-songwriter had been one of America's most celebrated musicians since You Send Me had soared to number one on both Billboard's Rhythm and Blues records chart and the Billboard's Hot 100 in 1957. But the news that greeted radio listeners on the night of December 11, 1964, had nothing to do with Sam Cooke's record-breaking music. I was on the expressway in Detroit. This is Smokey Robinson, a music legend in his own right, speaking in a documentary called The Sam Cooke Story. The disc came on the radio and said, soul singer Sam Cooke was shot to death last night. What? No, no, no. That's not, that's not true. It can't be so. But it was. Sam Cooke was one of the most popular singers in the entire world, one of the first black men to cross over from gospel into the mainstream as a favorite for black and white listeners alike. And now not only was he dead, but the story surrounding his fatal shooting was an especially ugly one. The tale told by Los Angeles police was that Cook had chased down a woman he had intended to sexually assault, then attacked another woman who shot him three times in self-defense inside the main office of a seedy motel. Not only was the man gone, but his legacy was tarnished too. The thing that hurt us the most is the rumors that was going around as to how he died. Agnes Hoskins, Sam's sister. Because within myself, I know that it did not happen the way they said it happened. Because I know my brother. It wasn't only those related to Cook who had trouble believing this. The story surrounding his death, which it's worth noting came just two months before his friend Malcolm X would be assassinated, remains controversial nearly 60 years after it happened. Sam Cooke was born in Clarksdale, Mississippi in January of 1931, the fourth child of the Reverend Charlie Cooke and his homemaker wife, Annie May. For the record, the family name was spelled C-O-O-K. Charlie was a passionate preacher at a Black Baptist holiness church. He and Annie would ultimately raise four boys and three girls into adulthood. They also had two or three children who only lived days, according to public records. I mention this because it had to have affected the children to have attended the burials of long-awaited brothers and sisters. It's likely the children who remained were raised to believe that they had a purpose to fulfill in this life. Sam's family had tremendous religious roots, and I know he had this love for his father and mother and his family. That's friend and former manager Jess Rand speaking in a 1999 episode of E! Mysteries and Scandals. 
Sam was still a toddler when the family moved from Mississippi to Chicago during what's generally called today the Great Migration, a 60-year period in which some 6 million Black people moved from the South to, well, just about anywhere else they could in America. For the Cook family, the move came as the nation struggled with the Great Depression. As we've talked about before, the Depression hit pretty much everyone hard, but it was especially tough on Black Americans because they were the first to be laid off from their jobs. As bad as the unemployment rate was across the board, for a Black worker, the likelihood that they would be out of work was two to three times the likelihood of a white worker. Journalist Lee Bay of the Chicago Sun-Times. He comes up to the big city uh, during the Great Migration, just like my parents did. My father was, was friends with Sam Cooke. They grew up together on the same block. The family stood out for several reasons, Sam being one of them. He started singing by age five. As a child, people understand that, that, that the power of his voice that can have an effect on people. I will never stop being floored by these people I research who just had it the Selenas and the Navarros and Sam Cooks of the world who were born with such innate talent. It's not that they didn't also work their butts off, don't get me wrong. I'm not implying that they had it easy. But to be born with this spark, this gift. I'm not religious, but the word that springs to even my heathen mind is blessed. So maybe it's no wonder that that's how Sam saw it too, as did his dad. He didn't just put Sam and his siblings in the church choir. He made them the entire choir, like it was just Reverend Cook's kids. This was at the Chicago Heights Church Christ Tabernacle, according to the book Sam Cook, The Truth by B.G. Rule. Sam's vocals stood out so much that he was still just a teenager when he graduated to joining a popular gospel group called the Soul Stirrers. Part of what made him popular, which is ironic because he was singing in churches, was his sex appeal. This is singer-turned-music historian Billy Barra. So the soul stirrers started to notice that suddenly they get a lot of teenage girls and they were reacting in a way that was not exactly religious. And in fairness, Sam Cooke didn't always respond in ways his father probably had preached. Sam seemed bowled over by all this attention. In fact, in the early 1950s, starting around age 22, he fathered three children out of wedlock with three different women, though he'd later marry one of the mothers. I noticed his Wikipedia page only lists three children, period, but those are the three born with the woman that he eventually married. For the record, this is why I don't rely on Wikipedia. Based on genealogical records, it appears that one of those Wikipedia-mentioned children was his firstborn. Linda Cook arrived in 1953. Her mother was Barbara Campbell, who'd been one of Sam's high school sweethearts and would eventually become his wife, though she wasn't his first wife. Before Barbara, he married a woman named Dolores Milligan Mohawk, a Texas-born singer of Apache descent who went by the nickname Dee Dee, about whom I couldn't find much reliable info. The books I referenced actually misspelled her damn name. I do know that she was just stunning in appearance, was on the swim team in high school, and was fated for a rocky marriage and premature death. The rocky marriage part was no doubt tied to Sam's touring demands and his roving eye. He was popular on the gospel singing circuit, so he toured a lot, but he wasn't paid particularly well. 
Dee Dee worked multiple jobs just to keep them afloat, and Sam's notorious womanizing couldn't have helped matters. They were married in 1953, estranged within a couple of years, and officially divorced in 1958. It was around the time of the divorce, though, that Sam's career began to shift gears. It wasn't as easy a shift as it might seem in hindsight, though, especially not for a preacher's son. Radio host Bill Gardner explains in a documentary called Lady, You Shot Me. In the 50s, uh, there was a group of very religious black people, and if you would listen to any other music, it was the devil's music. You couldn't play Little Richard. You couldn't play all this Hank Ballard in, in the Midnighters. There was just no, no way did the two musics come, come together. So Sam Cooke had to find a way of doing that. Sam tested the waters, releasing a song called Lovable. She's so lovable. Candace Sweet. And Honey Too. But Lovable wasn't released under Sam's name. Instead, he took on the stage name Dale Cook. In hindsight, it was kind of a silly effort, really, because Sam had a distinctive singing voice. It's the reason why he, as a gospel singer with the Soul Stirrers, could release a gospel standard that had been recorded dozens of times before, like Jesus Gave Me Water, and make it a hit. According to music writer Peter Grelnick, what made Sam stand out wasn't that he was a perfect singer or even necessarily better than his peers. You can hear Sam's voice break, you can hear him falter in one or two places, and yet his ability to communicate in a way that was natural, that was easy, that brought the listener in, that was confidential in a sense, in a way that, that made each listener feel as if he's singing directly to me. This is something you can't ever teach anybody. Lovable did well, and it allowed Sam to float his professional intentions to those around him who worried about the devil's wrath. That included his father. Talk to my grandfather about it. This is Eugene Jameson, Sam's nephew. They tell me Papa wasn't very pleased at first, but he did give him his blessing. He told him, you know, God gave you a gift to sing. And what you have to do is use that gift would be a sin not to use the gift that God gave you. In 1957, Sam used his gift to record the song, You Send Me. Darling, you send me. It was released by a small label, but managed to attract the attention of some influential DJs of the era, and Sam Cooke was an overnight sensation. I should mention, by the way, that it's at this point Sam's surname gets an E added to the end. COOK was too pedantic, apparently. While the rest of Sam's family would stick with that spelling, Sam would be surnamed COOKE. Now, when I say Sam's life changed overnight, I'm not exaggerating. At this point, he and his wife, Dee Dee, were estranged, and he was reportedly crashing in a friend's apartment in the summer of 1957, which is when he recorded the official version of the song. It was released in October and originally intended to be the B-side to another song called Summertime, but listeners preferred You Send Me, and suddenly DJs were playing this thing on repeat, 
One of those DJs was a young black man at KGFA Los Angeles named Nathaniel, but better known as the Magnificent Montague. His trademark catchphrase was burn, baby, burn. I called Sam Cooke to come on down. We sat there, we swapped poetry, we played that record over and over again. It became not a record, it became an event. Author Daniel Wolf, who wrote a book called You Send Me, The Life and Times of Sam Cooke. For it to be a major hit, it had to sell to white people. And it did, to white teenagers. There were certainly people who only sold to black people. Right? Sam started off selling to both groups. All groups. By December of 57, so two months after the song's release, you could find newspaper ads for his live appearances. On stage, in person, the nation's number one record star. Just as Sam's career began to explode, his marriage with Dee Dee officially ended. Some of the women he had dated previously filed paternity suits. These weren't totally hushed up either. In April of 1958, I found a newspaper brief about Sam paying a Philadelphia woman $5,000 to quickly settle a paternity claim. The short story actually ponders whether it was wise for Cook to pay the woman so quickly. Quote, The talk is that it might put ideas into the heads of scheming females who will do anything to earn a lump of change 5,000 bills high. End quote. A news brief three years later had a different tone. Quote, rock and roll singer Sam Cooke was arrested Tuesday on a bastardy warrant after his show at a local nightclub. Cooke, 30, who is married and lives in Hollywood, was charged in the warrant with fathering a child eight years ago. The charges were on file in Cleveland since 1958, police said. End quote. Now, one of the books I read for research made a point to emphasize that Sam took financial care of his kids and stayed friendly with his past lovers. I don't know if that's universally true. Obviously, some women found it necessary to file paternity suits, which at least suggests they felt like they needed to go through legal channels to get Sam to step up. But there's evidence he tried to be supportive of some of the women. For example, when his first wife, Dee Dee, died in 1959 in a car accident, Sam paid for a funeral. That happened in March. Seven months later, Sam married Barbara Campbell, who by then was pregnant with their second child, another daughter, this one named Tracy. Barbara and Sam's marriage sounds like it was just as strained as his first marriage. Sam was on the road a lot and just wasn't the faithful type. Barbara had affairs too. Still, they would go on to have a third child together, a son named Vincent. Tragically, while home with Barbara, Vincent fell into a pool and drowned when he was 18 months old. Sam was devastated and bitter. He thought Barbara had been neglectful, but she wasn't the only one he blamed, according to Zelda Sands, his former assistant. As much as he blamed Barbara, he felt guilty. He himself felt he should have been there, too, or, you know, wrestled with that. To deal with the grief, Sam did what he had always done. He threw himself into his work, and his career was unparalleled, a fact made all the more amazing when factoring in his race. The late 50s and early 60s was a time of segregation, after all. In the South, Sam was often asked to perform in places he wasn't allowed to enter, or if he was admitted entrance, he was relegated to segregated seating. That didn't sit well with him. Imagine how that must have felt 
to be one of the biggest singers in the world, who just so happened to be black, being asked to perform on stages in front of segregated crowds. He felt an obligation to use his platform to, you know, not act like that was okay. Eric Green, one of Sam's nephews. If uh, there was a show that was segregated, Sam would either cancel the show or in in one instance in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas back in 1958, where they had sectioned off the black audience from the white audience, Sam said, okay, all right, I'll give the show, but I'm going to turn and sing to the black guy. You can't tell me which direction to turn. So he was always putting on protests in his own way. The more successful he got, the more pointed his protests became. Nephew Eugene Jameson tells another story about Sam being on tour when his car ran out of gas. One of his bandmates left to walk to a station to get gas, leaving Sam behind with the vehicle. Police came up, asked him why was the car sitting there. He told them. They told Sam to get out of the car and push the car over to the side of the road. He said, man, I'm a singer. I'm not a pusher. You want to put a ticket on it? You ticket it and I'll pay for it. But I'm not pushing nothing. My name is Sam Cook. I'm an entertainer. If you've never heard of me, I bet your wife have. So when you go home, you ask your wife if she's ever heard of Sam Cook, and I bet they know me. The cops left him alone. Now, I don't know if those officers would have asked a white motorist to push his car to. I can't say for sure that the request was racially motivated. But given the climate of the time, I can at least see why Sam might have bristled and made the assumption that they were being disrespectful because of his race because it happened all the time. I mean, his bandmates tell a story about a time Sam was waiting to be served at a diner and the waitress kept passing his table by to serve white patrons. Then one of Sam's songs came on the jukebox and she squealed in delight because she just loved Sam Cooke. She had no idea the guy she was ignoring was her supposed idol. At this point, Sam's voice was in everyone's ear, which would make his untimely end not only heard across the country and beyond, but felt. Sam Cooke seems to have been one of those people in life who just never stopped moving. He was writing songs, he was betting women left and right, and he was reading. Everyone who knew him described him as a voracious reader, And with the civil rights movement looming, a lot of the books he read were about black history and culture. It entered his music early on. Surely you know this song. That's the sound of the men working on the chain gang. I remember singing this when I was in elementary school and having zero idea that this was about prisoners working in chains on the roadside. That pretty much encapsulates the white girl bubble I lived in. Sam Cooke lived in no such bubble. The fact that he had crossed into the mainstream seems to have made him even more aware of the struggles around him. He became mindful of the image he presented. He was among the first black entertainers, for example, who wore his hair natural musician Bobby Womack. He was very unhappy, and he, and he read more, and he became more about, hey, man, you see this hair? I ain't straightening my hair. I never put no straightening my hair again. I'm proud of my heritage. And he started getting into that. And the seriousness came out of, that's the sound of the men working on the chain. Sam's reading led to activism. 
He befriended Malcolm X and Cassius Clay, the boxer who would convert to Islam and change his name to Muhammad Ali. Both of those men piqued the interest of FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. The agency opened a file on Malcolm X in 1953 and continued its surveillance of him until his assassination in 1965. Now, Sam made it clear that while he was an artist, he had no intention of being the starving sort. Here he is in 1959 talking to Dick Clark on American Bandstand about his career prior to the release two years earlier of You Send Me. You hadn't made any popular songs, but you had been working in another field, had you? That's right. I was doing spirituals at the time, Dick. All right. What caused you at that point in your career of 57 to turn to this kind of singing? My economic situation. (laughs) (laughs) There's a very honest answer. Entering the pop business, he learned fast that musicians often ended up getting bum deals because they usually signed contracts that ensured the record labels cleaned up on hit songs. Cook wanted to protect himself. He'd signed with RCA Records and knew that his music was making them a good bit of money. To make sure he was getting his fair share, he asked to be able to review his accounts. RCA repeatedly refused. Stuff like that still happens today. I mean, there's a reason Taylor Swift is releasing Taylor's versions of her early work. She doesn't own the original masters. It's a confusing as hell industry now, But back in the 50s and 60s, whatever rules we do have in place today didn't even exist yet. And it was far, far worse for black artists than for white. Filmmaker John Antonelli. You know, if you go all the way back to the beginnings of, um, you know, African-American roots music, I mean, those guys got exploited by white, you know, record company owners, small record company owners and executives. And... um, you know, that, that's part of the history of rock and roll music. Sam was stuck in his RCA contract for the time being, but he decided he could do something to help out other musicians. Sam was uh, big into setting up something for himself. He wanted his own record label. This is entertainment attorney Joel Kellum, who has one of the graveliest voices I've ever heard. He's speaking in the Lady You Shot Me documentary. He wanted his own publishing company. He wanted his own management company. And so in 1962, 63, 64, he really focused on signing the best artists in the the world. He had signed Mel Carter. He had signed the Sims Twins. He signed um, Johnny Morissette. He signed a lot of really good talent. And he had recorded the talent that he was going to put out his own record label. This part gets complicated dealing with royalties and publishing rights and keeping tabs of how many pressings any given song had. But the bottom line is that this arrangement threatened to upend the status quo. He was really going to take on the world, and he would have been a lot bigger than Motown Records because he had a, a, a really a leg up on Motown. If you were somebody in the music business at the time, you would have been really threatened with that. Um, you would have been really threatened with his empowerment. This was all ramping up in the early 1960s. Around the same time, Sam connected with a man named Alan Klein, who had helped audit some record companies and, in doing so, clawed back some royalties for other musicians who'd been shafted. He was fast becoming known as a ruthless negotiator who was willing to stand up to even mafia-connected record labels, which was definitely a thing. Now that we're decades removed from all of this, I can say with the benefit of hindsight that more than one mainstream label was later revealed to be a front business for organized crime. But that same hindsight tells me that Alan Klein wasn't some knight in shining armor. 
When he hooked up with Sam, Klein did force RCA to go over Sam's accounts, and he managed to recoup tens of thousands of dollars that RCA owed Sam. But he was also shady. We know this for a lot of reasons, like the fact that eventually every member of the Beatles thought he was a crook. But to keep things simple, I'll just point to the fact that he was charged with felony tax evasion for the years of 1970, 71, and 72. After his first trial ended with the jury deadlocked, Klein pleaded guilty to misdemeanor tax evasion and served two months in jail. Antonelli again. Alan Klein was a person who got very, very wealthy based on the rights of other people's music, other people's creations. And Sam Cooke was the very first person who he did that with. And it, because he did that with Sam Cooke, the Beatles and the Stones agreed to let him publish their music and control their music with the promise of making them a lot of money. He did make Sam Cooke a lot of money, but he also made himself even more money, I think, in that process. That's one way of putting things. Another way comes courtesy of Zelda Sands. I had no respect for him. I thought he was a thief. I heard nothing but bad things about him. With Klein, Sam created a business called Tracy Records Limited, named after his second daughter with Barbara. It was basically a tax shelter, and it assigned distribution rights to RCA for a finite period of time. After that time frame, rights reversed back to Tracy Records, which Sam owned, or so he thought. Tracy's first releases were Sam Cooke at the Copa and Ain't That Good News. These both came out in 1963. Because Sam died in 1964, a lot about this company was shrouded in mystery until fairly recently. This is Donald Piper, president of the Sam Cooke fan club and also a paralegal who's done research on the company. Tracy Limited is a Nevada corporation. It was created in 1963. Sam thought the company was his, but Piper said that actually wasn't the case. What's missing from the articles of incorporation that were filed was a statement about the shareholders of the company. The articles speak to the directors of the company. The board of directors serves under the pleasure of the shareholders. Well, in this particular case, there was only one shareholder of Tracy Limited, and that person could change the board of directors, could name a different person as president at any time. And that person was Alan Klein. Long story short, Sam thought he owned Tracy Records, but really, Alan Klein did. Sam apparently told some people he'd figured out he'd been bamboozled in late 1964. He was pissed, and he was ready for a confrontation. Before any of his friends and family heard what happened with that, though, they were grappling with other, far more shocking news. Sam Cooke was dead. The official story of Sam Cooke's death goes like this. On December 11th, 1964, Sam had dinner and drinks with his friend and producer Al Schmidt and Schmidt's wife. Things seemed normal. Sam was flashing some four or $5,000 in cash, and Schmidt supposedly told him, hey, you might want to be a bit more discreet with your dough, but Sam laughed it off. A young woman at the bar caught Sam's eye. She was a 22-year-old Asian-American woman who it would later be revealed did sex work. 
Before that was public, though, she would testify in a coroner's inquest that Sam forced her into his car, drove her to a seedy $3-a-night motel, and prepared to rape her. She was terrified, she said on the stand, and when Sam went to the bathroom, she grabbed a pile of clothes and ran from the room. That pile included Sam's clothes, and he ran after her, covered by only an overcoat and wearing just one shoe. Sam ran to the officer of the motel manager, banged on the door, and according to that woman, a 55-year-old black woman named Bertha Franklin, he burst into the office and rushed at her. She feared for her life and opened fire, shooting Sam three times. One of the bullets entered his chest. Sam collapsed. Well, that's what she said at first. Later, when bruising was found on Sam's body, the story changed a little and Franklin said that Sam lunged at her one more time after he'd been fatally shot and she'd beaten him over the head with a broom. Police arrived, medics removed the body from the scene, and a very bizarre coroner's inquest followed, during which the women who said Sam had tried to attack them was allowed to wear disguises while testifying. I have to say this is odd. Lisa Boyer took the stand wearing dark sunglasses, as did Bertha Franklin. Boyer said, He had pinned me down on the bed and he pulled me up and um, he yanked my, he pulled my sweater off and he ripped my dress off. Boyer, who a few months after Sam's death was arrested in a sex worker sting, said she bolted when Sam went to use the bathroom. She ran outside and found a payphone to call police. She said she'd been kidnapped. Meanwhile, Sam was inside, apparently convinced that Boyer had run to the manager's office. He had that four dollars or $5,000 in his pants pocket, and he apparently was convinced that Boyer and Franklin were in cahoots to steal the money. At the inquest, Franklin said, I started shooting. And how far was Mr. Cook away from you when you started shooting? He wasn't too far. He was at close range. And... How many times did you fire this pistol? Three times. And do you know whether you struck, or did you know you struck Mr. Cook? Yes, because he said, later you shot me. And you know, maybe that's what happened. I wasn't around yet. But people who were around, and more notably, people who knew Sam, have a hard time with this explanation for several reasons. First, according to legendary singer Etta James's memoir, she saw Sam's body and a broom beating as not lining up with his injuries. She wrote that his head was, quote, practically disconnected from his shoulders. That's how badly he had been beaten. His hands were bruised and crushed. They tried to cover it up with makeup, but I could see massive bruises on his head. No woman with a broomstick could have inflicted that kind of beating against a strong, full-grown man, end quote. Conveniently, there aren't clear photos of Sam post-mortem. There's one image where you see him slumped against a doorway, but he's positioned in a way that neither confirms nor disputes James's description of him. You can't see his hands in the photo at all. The lack of documentation likely has to do with the fact that he was a black man killed in Los Angeles in 1964. William Parker was police chief around that time. This is Jamel Dolphin, whose grandfather opened Dolphin's Records, a popular and integrated record shop in L.A. Basically hated to see the integrated scene. He wanted, he wanted all the races to be separate. When you look into Parker's legacy, you see the phrases police brutality and racism pop up an awful lot, but that's for a different deep dive. What's important to understand about this case is that the cops who arrived at the scene of Sam's death 
didn't know who he was and didn't seem too concerned about what had really happened. Boyer and Franklin said this guy was attacking them unprovoked and that sounded good enough. But there are elements that don't quite fit. For example, the fact that Sam was shot with a 22 caliber pistol, well, Bertha Franklin had a registered gun, but it was a 32. The 22 pulled from Sam's body, by the way, well, that's been lost. Also, the other people who testified who were at the hotel, nobody heard a gunshot. The rumors began straight away. Some people believed Sam had been beaten and shot by mobsters with record industry ties. Maybe it had happened somewhere else, and Boyer and Franklin were paid off to provide their stories, these people figure. When you realize that money from Sam's songs to this day goes to benefit Alan Klein's heirs and not Sam's, well, you can see why that suspicion remains. Some people wondered if Barbara, Sam's wife, maybe played a role in her husband's death. Things had become unbearably tense after little Vincent drowned in the family pool. It didn't help that Barbara married Sam's teenage protege, Bobby Womack, just a few months after Sam died. And it's worth noting that Barbara later shot a gun at Bobby when she caught Bobby sleeping with her and Sam's oldest daughter, Linda. Other people thought that the police and or feds played a role in the killing because they didn't like that Sam was hanging out with the guys the FBI had under surveillance, guys like Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X, the latter of whom would be killed just two months later in an assassination that led to the wrongful convictions of two men, by the way. That law enforcement might have been involved seems a stretch if you believe that police didn't know who Sam was until some 12 hours after he died. But more sinister things have been known to happen. Sam's last song, after all, was the song A Change Is Gonna Come, a tune that challenged how Black people were treated in America, and a song that became an anthem of the civil rights era. Whatever really happened, it's safe to say the case wasn't investigated properly, and it'd be tough to find the answers today. Bertha Franklin died 18 months after Sam's death, and Lisa Boyer was involved in a subsequent fatal shooting in 1979, for which she was convicted of second-degree murder. She's still in prison. Alan Klein died in 2009. Much of the evidence in this case has long been lost. That there are so many unknowns makes this a tough story to tell. But what's clear is the impact Sam Cooke's death had on the music industry and his fans, especially as fans of color. Two funerals were held, one in L.A., the other in his hometown of Chicago. More than 10,000 people paid their respects. It's been Among them was Muhammad Ali, still known then as Cassius Clay, who said if it had been Paul McCartney of the Beatles slain instead of Sam Cooke, the FBI would be all over the case. Everyone knew that was true, which is why Sam's posthumous song, A Change Is Gonna Come, probably resonated as much as it did, because it was hard to stomach that Sam's music could be so optimistic in spite of his life being cut so short. But I know a change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. 
To research this story, I watched so many documentaries. Lady Who Shot Me, The Killing of Sam Cooke, E-Mysteries and Scandals, Sam Cooke's Life in the End, and the Soul Deep documentary. I also read the book Sam Cooke, The Truth by B.G. Rule, though I have to say it was not an even-handed analysis of the case. It actually argues repeatedly that Sam Cooke couldn't have intended to rape Lisa Boyer because she wasn't all that attractive. Note to authors, don't make arguments like that. I also read the relevant portions of the book Sam Cooke and Otis Redding by Charles River Editors. And finally, I talked to my dad, Bruce Hunt, because he had read a book by Jimmy Rogers that touched on the case, too. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at centuriespod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page.